All right, I think we'll get started, um, and there will be a few more people uh, trickling into the edges here. Uh, welcome. This is CSIS's uh, Careers and Development um, session series, and we talk about different aspects of, of the development enterprise and, and careers within that. Today we have with us uh, Rob Jenkins, who's the director of the Office of Transition Initiatives at USAID, and I think you have <laughs> his bio, he's been with OTI since uh, 1998, and now he's the director of it. He's been very engaged in the Balkans, in the Middle East, and in Africa uh, with OTI. Prior to that, he worked for World Vision International in Africa, in Sudan, and Sierra Leone, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you worked for Desmond Tutu for a couple of years. I didn't know I did. that. I thought yeah. that, you never told me that. I didn't, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> you learn the funniest things when you do this about people you know. Anyway, uh, Rob has a lot of experience in the emergency development and stabilization phases of, of the development, uh, I guess, enterprise or endeavor. And so it's a, with great pleasure to let me introduce Rob, and he's going to talk for a little while about OTI and what it does and how he got into the business, I think. Yep. And then I may ask him a question or two, depending on what he says, and then we'll open it up for general questions. So without further ado. Thank you, Ambassador Garvalink, or Bill. Um, thank you, everybody, for showing up. It's an honor to be here and be invited as part of the series. I know that it's the doldrums of August, so you had to, like, find someone <laughs> that's still in town, and it, I'm happy to be here, so thanks. Uh, yeah, I am going to talk about two different things. Uh, when Bill first contacted me, he said this is largely about uh, helping folks learn different ways to get careers in this line of work and talk about your story and how you got to where you are. And then I saw the uh, announcement that went out and it's all about talking about OTI. So I'll talk about both and give you some context. Um, first, I'll start with OTI. Uh, it's the Office of Transition Initiatives. We have worked very hard since 1994 when we were created not to define transition uh, that, and keep it flexible. I can take lots of questions on that if you want. Uh, we work primarily in post-conflict and political transition countries. And we pride ourselves on being fast, being flexible, being risk-taking. Uh, we don't always live up to that, but when our reality meets our rhetoric, that's what we aim to do. We see ourselves as venture capitalists in these political transitions. And I like to think of it as one of our uh, real value adds within the government is the ability to put very small amounts of money on very small targets very quickly. Our government is not very good at moving money quickly, and often it takes just as much work to move a million or two million dollars as it does to do $100,000. And we've worked very hard over the years to come up with systems and mechanisms and methodologies that allow us in Darfur to find eight women under a tree uh, that have an idea. We can fund that idea, and we can sometimes do it in a matter of a day or two. Um, we, and we can talk more about how we do that. We're field-driven. We have a... Uh, our philosophy, at least my personal philosophy, is any idea that, that's dreamt up in Washington is wrong until proven otherwise. And any idea that comes out of the field is right until proven otherwise. And we do everything we can to empower our field teams and through them our implementing partners with the design, with the, with the policy, with the ideas. The ideas come out of the field. Our role back here in Washington is to try to you know, run the traps for them, raise money for them, 
and uh, give them whatever they need to, be, to run the best programs in the world. Um, we can get more into act, what we actually do, but I want to stress we are political. People talk about the relief to development continuum. They talk about the transition between relief and development. And we have our sister, our big sister, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance uh, that we uh, look up to in many ways. They come in, and after six, 12 months, their humanitarian assistance might end. And you have the other USAID mission, larger long-term development programs. People often look to us and say, oh, you guys bridge that gap. We actually don't. Um, we are focused on political transition. And we can take, I can, I'd love to talk, take your questions on what that means and what that looks like. I find our creation story, as an anthropologist once said, after I told them that, they said, oh, that's your creation story. I find it very helpful to understand where we came from. It was either December of 1992 or January 1993. And it was the transition period between the first George, it's the, the George Bush Sr. Uh, administration and a young governor from Arkansas had just won and was president of elect of the United States, Bill Clinton. And the head of the transition team for State Department was a guy named Brian Atwood. Uh, I think that what we do during a transition in this uh, country is one of the hallmarks and greatest, most beautiful things of our democracy. Uh, we can go on to that if you want to. But this transition period, you have the head of the transition team, and he goes in the State Department, and one of the things they do is they go and they start measuring the curtains and checking out what the office looks like. But the incoming administration sits down with the outgoing administration and hears, what would you guys do if you'd won? What would you do if you'd gotten around to it? And one of the things that Larry Eagleburger said, outgoing Secretary of State, was, you know, AIDS gotten okay at doing this development thing, and now we have this humanitarian thing. Um, but they just lived in 89, 90 through the Berlin Wall coming down, the end of the Cold War. As they were speaking, our troops were hitting the beach in Mogadishu. The world was changing. And Eagleburger said, what we don't have in our foreign assistance uh, arsenal is the ability to respond quickly to windows of opportunity when they arise. It takes just too long for all of the strategies to be written and the programs to be designed and the money to be gotten out of Congress. Two years sometimes? I mean, realistically, two years? Something changes in a country and you want to pivot what the foreign assistance uh, strategy is and the programming is? It takes a long time. What we need, he's telling Atwood, is something that's fast something that's flexible, that can go in there and take advantage of those moments of opportunity, to try to uh, put our thumb on the scale and uh, help the, that uh, transition onto a positive trajectory. Well, Brian became administrator of USAID. And while he was administrator, he, he did a lot. But two of the things he created was the Office of Transition Initiatives. In the second year there, he started in 93. In 94, they started OTI. He also started what was then the Democracy and Governance Center, which is a huge thing, uh, putting down markers in that space on democracy and political transitions. So that's what we were created to do. We were created to get in there and be political and help make a difference. And we're very, very uh, proud of saying in our mission statement, the very first words are, in support of US foreign policy objectives, we advance peaceful democratic change. Uh, not everyone within USAID 
always uh, yells and screams about the US foreign policy objective part, which is fine. There's humanitarian principles. There's good development practice. We respect all of that. But we see our job to be the very, very sharpest edge on US foreign policy that we can be. And that's very different in different places. So what we do in Afghanistan is different than Pakistan, which is different than Yemen, which is very different than Sri Lanka and very different from what we're doing right now in Kyrgyzstan. It's also very different than our newest programs in Honduras, and we're starting a program in Burma right now. So there's a lot of different places that we do things, um, and we do things differently in all of those places. But the common thread is we work with local actors, find people with good ideas, and fund them. And we usually do it with lots of small activities. Some things will work, some things won't. That's what we talk about being venture capitalist. But we do lots and lots of things, a preponderance of activity grouped by objective to try to make things happen in a positive way. And if, it's, if it doesn't work, we stop it. Or if the conditions change, we change it. And we've built an entire methodology of monitoring and evaluation and program design and constant assessment and reassessment giving us the ability to target and retarget all the time throughout the course of a program. Um, I'll just end with, and then I'll go on to my story. Uh, we pride ourselves on being an operational donor. What does that mean? And the people in OTI hate it when I say this, but at the end of the day, USAID basically is a banker. We basically give money away. Everything else that USAID does generally is sort of just improving upon that model. And we are nothing as an agency without our implementing partners, because we don't actually do a whole lot um, ourselves. We need people to take the, the resources we give them to do things. Um, our current administrator, Dr. Raj Shah, is doing a lot to try to get back to where aid used to be and actually working directly with local partners and not going through implementing partners. And we're making great strides in that area. But as, as a model over the last 20, 30 years, much of what USAID does is give resources to others, either NGOs or private firms, and they do the work. And there's a lot of criticism uh, that, that comes over the transom about how aid actually just is a contracting agency and contracts out things, and others design it, and others do it. We in OTI have uh, done everything we can to make sure that the programs we run are run by us of our design. We use uh, implementing partners that are NGOs. We use some that are, uh, we use IOM, the International, for Organiz International Organization for Migration, quite a lot. Um, but most of who we work with are private contractors. And I am a, f a strong advocate in this space when it says, Contracting is not bad. It is very, 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 very popular in Washington outside right now to say that these contractors, they have these high overheads and they're all beltway bandits. And we love working with contractors because we tell them what to do. And they give us a force multiplication that we otherwise couldn't have. So in country, we would usually have about one or two, we usually have two people that work for OTI. Our contractor has a few expats and then lots and lots and lots of local staff. And we tell them exactly what to do in a one-team approach where they're basically our staff, just one or two steps removed. We don't say, here is the money, you go do what you we have promised to do, and then every quarter we'll get the report back from you and we'll talk about it. 
We're on the phone every single day. We're in meetings with them every day. We're approving every single activity every day. And we see them as an extension of ourselves. What that means is if the program doesn't go well, we don't say, ah, the partner screwed that one up. What we say is the program didn't go well, we screwed up. We did not run the right kind of program and we need to fix it. And we see it as not a donor implementer relationship. We see it as a one team approach that we are working with them. They work with us for one program at our direction. They're implement, implementing it. I can take questions on that. Um, so I was supposed to talk a bit about my story. So this is like a great big now uh, informational interview. I do about two or three info interviews a week, which is a lot. Um, but I think it's important. And uh, a colleague of some of ours, Tim Beans, who I have a whole lot of respect for, uh, af after about 30 years in the Foreign Service in USAID, uh, we had a, a going away party for him. And he got it to say some words. And there was two, he said, there's two things I want you to remember. This is after 30 years. First thing, never send an email in anger. And we're like, that's good advice, but after 30 years, that's all you got, Tim? <laughs> um, but just wait 24 hours. Those of you that have made that mistake, though, it really is good advice. So the other one he had was take time to sit down and have a cup of coffee at least once a week with someone younger than you who wants advice. I take that very seriously. A warning is you're going to get just about all I got to give you right now, so it's probably a waste of your time, but I will buy you coffee. Um, it's funny that anyone comes to talk to me uh, about what they should do with their career, especially since two of my former bosses are here, uh, because I was acting director of OTI for four and a half years. That's got to be a record. So I don't think I'm the best guy to get career advice. I've been, if you know anything about the government system, I'm a civil servant now. Um, I'm on a GS scale. I've been working at the senior executive service level since 2006, which is meaning I should have got a raise a long time ago, and I haven't. Um, and there is no immediate prospect for me getting it unless I change jobs and I love this job. So this is all just truth in advertising. I'm probably not the right guy to go to for advice on, on, on jobs. But you're here anyways, and you're a captive audience, so you have to listen to me. Um, there's lots and lots of ways to get into this business. There's lots of ways to have a great career. There's ways that you can do it in the field. There's ways you can do it in Washington. There's ways that you can make money. There's ways that you can't make money, very much money, but you can influence policy. There's ways that you can do both. Um, and I hope some of you, or a lot of you, have been to see the, some of the other people in this series and will continue to come because no one has the answer, there is no one answer, and there's so many different ways to do it. It's funny that I'm here as a government representative because in 1989 I promised myself I would never, ever, ever work for the United States government. Uh, 1989, I was a sophomore in college. I was in Namibia at the time. I was in a Land Rover being driven by the Anglican Bishop of Namibia and several, until very recently, uh, rebel commanders of the People's Liberation Army of Namibia. And South Africa had been fighting a long war in Angola and Namibia and finally decided to give in and was giving independence to what was a South African colony, Southwest uh, Africa 
to become the newest nation in Africa that was liberated, Namibia. And I've been spending time, I spent the summer with Archbishop Tutu, we can talk about that, um, in, in South Africa, in Cape Town, and I went to Namibia for 10 days to help monitor the UN monitors. And we're in this vehicle, and I was all anti-apartheid out at the time in college, and I was all Desmond Tutu worshiping, and I still am. And I'm with these command rebel commanders, and I was all excited, and I said, I can't wait to graduate from college. And I went to, to Bowdoin, a small school in Maine, which is about as far from Namibia in many different directions as it gets. Um, you know, there's not a lot of L.L. Bean in, in Namibia. Um, and I said, it'd be really, really cool to graduate and come to Namibia, a free, independent Namibia, as a Peace Corps volunteer. And they all laughed at me. Like, you naive little American. I go, what? I go, don't you understand? Peace Corps is going to be social. Uh, Peace Corps won't come here because Namibia is going to be a socialist country. And I said, you mean Peace Corps is political? This is still 1989. I was ignorant. I had no idea that Peace Corps was part of our US foreign policy and where we put things and didn't. I just thought Peace Corps was you know, our best and brightest, the whole JFK thing going around the world. Um, and I said to myself, man, that's it. I'm never going to work for the US government. I'm never going to work for the man. Um, later, as I thought about it, in my mind it was always, what if you worked, and it doesn't matter what your politics are. Um, for me, it was, what if you were working for the State Department as a political officer in some embassy uh, in 1979, and Jimmy Carter was president, and you were doing US foreign policy in Central America? Then on January 20th of 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes president. And suddenly, what you're doing every day changes drastically. I was like, not going to be me, man. I'm always going to be doing my own thing. I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do. I've been with the US government since 1998 now, uh, through different administrations. And so just remember, whatever you firmly believe right now, you might not always firmly believe that. And that's OK. Um, so how did I end up in Namibia? Just very quickly. I was an activist in high school and in college and got an opportunity to spend a summer with, with Archbishop Tutu on my parents' dime. Uh, very invested at the time in anti-apartheid stuff. Found out a way to go to Oxford to study abroad and study South African political geography and history and wanted to get to South Africa any way I could, but I was, I was dedicated to not taking a job in South Africa. There was 78% unemployment among blacks. I didn't want to take a job from someone. I was uh, very idealistic. So I got a Watson Fellowship, uh, a fellowship for folks coming out of uh, small liberal arts schools that allowed me to go for nine to 18 months. I stretched it out to two years, and I volunteered for Archbishop Tutu for two years. After that, uh, I needed to make some money, and I was still all, I'm not going to work for a job in South Africa. Um, so I looked around, and I got the Africa bug, and I found the place that was most screwed up in Africa at the time, because I wanted to put whatever skills and talents, which aren't a lot and weren't then, to work to help Africans. And at the time, South Sudan was pretty screwed up. Got a job with World Vision, uh, and went to South Sudan for what ended up being two years. Uh, after two years in South Sudan, living in a tent, flying around on airplanes, uh, if you have the choice of a tent or a mud hut, stick to the tent because it zips closed and you can keep the bugs out and the rats out a lot easier. Don't believe them when they say the mud hut is more permanent, therefore it's cooler, all that. No, stay in the tent. Um, 
from that, I went to Sierra Leone. Uh, was working in Sierra Leone with World Vision. I actually wanted not to go to Sierra Leone, but go to Liberia, but a job came up to go to Sierra Leone, and I thought I'd go there and turn that into a job in, into, in Liberia. I actually fell in love with Sierra Leone. Uh, ended up getting pulled out by the Marines after a very violent coup in 1997, uh, and spent six months in Guinea working a cross-border operation. Um, Guinea was not, Conakry, Guinea was not my favorite place in the world to live. And I looked back, and it was about six years of Africa at that point. I hadn't gone to grad school. Uh, I'd spent enough evenings at the bar in Lokachokyo, Kenya, which is the jumping off place in the South Sudan, that I didn't want to be 57 years old uh, on Christmas Eve with a semi-cold tusker in my hand and wonder, what am I doing alone in Lokachokyo, Kenya? Maybe I should figure out a longer-term plan than this. So. There wasn't a whole lot of internet connectivity in Guinea at the time either. So I figured I'm going to have to go back to the States and figure out what I want to do with my life. Maybe get a futon, maybe have some Doritos, maybe get a girlfriend. We'll see how it works out. But I should try to figure out a longer term plan. So I went back to the States and I had been implementing an OTI project or trying to until things went off the, 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 the rails in Sierra Leone. And I loved that OTI had brought together two of my loves. It was the political transition piece, the stuff I'd been doing in South Africa, and it was the ADD humanitarian, not long-term, but very immediate, uh, quick pace of implementation. And I saw that in OTI. So I decided I was going to get a job, if I could, at OTI for a year or two while I figured out what I wanted to do, what grad school I wanted to go to, and where I wanted to apply. And I was lucky that OTI, which was about 25 people, maybe a little bit more at the time, was hiring. They were ramping up and hiring two more program managers. Um, so they hired me, and I was lucky. The other one never got a security clearance, so I was that year's big explosion in hiring. I started as a GS9 personal services contractor, and my title was assistant project officer. We didn't have any project officers, but I was an assistant project officer. <laughs> OTI is very, was very into cutting and pasting. Whatever scope of work already was there, don't waste any time. They found an assistant project officer scope from someone else. Good enough, that was my title. And that was a year or two that I was going to dedicate to OTI, and I'm still there. Um, and we can go into that, too. There's a lot of different ways to get into government. Uh, it is in, in, in State Department, but I would say also just primarily at USAID, a caste system. The foreign service are the Brahmins. Below them, you have the civil servants, of which I am one. Below them, you have your personal services contractors that are looked at as many as scum and not actually people, more like staplers that you buy and procure and throw at things. And below them, you have institutional uh, support contractors who are contractors. You even have a different color badge that you let in to the building just because you need some help. And then after that, you have your implementing partners who actually do all the work. Um, I would tell you, and I tell everyone that I talk to, the most fun are the implementing partners. There are more jobs. They get to travel more. They, it's easier. You get to work with people that aren't just US citizens every day. Uh, and, but there's, and I can go through. There's different ways to get into each of those different categories. I will end with, and then take your questions. If you want to do this stuff, field experience helps. Even if you don't want it to work in the field later, field experience helps. And if you don't have the field experience, 
it's harder to get the longer you wait. You get encumbered with all of life's beautiful encumbrances. You get a mortgage. You, 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 you get married or you have a loved one you want to stay with. You, you have kids, whatever it is. If you want to go out to the field and get your field experience, get it while you can. It's easier than waiting. Um, and you've, if anyone has looked at trying to get field experience, probably knows it's always a catch-22. No one wants to send you overseas if you haven't already been overseas. Well, that's a hard one to fix. Take your internships. Take your volunteer jobs. That's how I got mine. I didn't, I did, I find someone, you know, save up and go three months and, 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 and do it. You know, the easiest way to find a job in, in Nairobi is to actually move to Nairobi and then start looking for a job if you want to go to Nairobi. There's a lot of different ways of doing it. But if you're going to do this, you're not going to get rich. You're not, you can, but just, if you wanted to get rich, you probably aren't in this room right now, right? There's different ways to get rich. This is a hard way to get rich. So don't worry about the money. Find what you want to do. Find what motivates you. This is where I'm going to cry. I cry all the time. And just take the job that looks like the most fun. If you follow that advice, you will have more fun. If you are the people, and I know the people, I want to be mission director, I want to be ambassador, I want to do this, and you try to plan that out, one, it rarely works out, and two, it's not as much fun as the people that just took the best opportunities as they came, didn't worry about the long-term plan, don't have a map, have a lighthouse. Just think of the general direction I want to go in. And the best thing about lighthouses is when you're steering around trying to get to one, you might actually see another one it's more fun to go to. And you just ditch that one and head up the coast somewhere else. With that, I'll take your questions. Thanks. <laughs> well, there's going to be a lot of questions. I want to ask one, though, that goes to one of the early things. Keep them easy. This will be easy. OK. Because um, I, I was kind of struck by your first comment that the, the guy who uh, was sort of the inspiration for OTI was Larry Eagleburger. Mm -hmm. Because he was the guy who created OFDA as well. When I tell the longer story, I tell that too, yeah. So, um, and Newberger just died last year, I believe, something like that. But he, he was an incredible force um, for being innovative and creative and has had an awful lot to do with uh, AID. And in fact, when we had budget problems in OFDA, really big one, we'd go to Eagleburger. And uh, he would go to senators and so on and just take care of it quietly. Uh, and uh, we could always count on Eagleburger for any any really tough problem. But anyway, we could use yeah. him today. But you are <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but just and you mentioned earlier you were going to talk a little bit about what you meant by transitions. Sure. So if you would do that just for a little bit, and then we'll open it up to all sorts of questions. We do this all the time in government, right? We work really hard to define exactly what we're talking about. The military is great at this. They put huge teams on in doctrine. What exactly do we mean by this thing? And then after about two or three years, they find a new thing comes up and the, that doesn't fit the definition. And then they have to spend two or three more years coming up with a new term because things change. When we were first created in 1994, we were very much, very much post-conflict. We were talking about Haiti, Angola, Rwanda. That's what was going on in the world. Rick Barton, who's now Assistant Secretary at State Department with the new CSO Bureau, was our first director. Good friend of Brian Atwood's and person, and I can go on why he was selected, and, and he, he built the culture that is OTI that we're very proud of today. He used to work here. Uh, yes, he did for many <laughs> years, and he was great. Um, 
he used to say that OTI is post-bullet and post-conflict. We actually don't use the term post-conflict very much, right? The work that we do in places like Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and Fatah, it's, it's hard to say that's post-conflict. Uh, so transition can't just be post-conflict anymore. If we talk about transition just being a peace deal assigned or uh, the right president wins in Liberia and we want to make sure that we support uh, President Johnson Sirleaf, that's a clear political transition. Um, what are we doing right now in Honduras? Well, in Honduras, we're going to be trying to disrupt violence. Is it a political transition? Hmm. Was Darfur a political transition when we went into Darfur? Not really. In Darfur, genocide was being uh, committed. And our president had said, there will be no genocide on our, my watch. And our administrator was Andrew Natsios, who had spent a lifetime dedicated to Sudan, among other places, and said, I am going to send in every tool I have to try to help in Darfur. We did not want to stand aside and say, oh, actually, Andrew, it's not really a transition as we define it. Um, so good luck with that Darfur thing. You don't last very long in government if you keep saying to your boss, we don't really want to take this one. So when Iraq started, we're like, well, you know, I was picked to lead the OTI planning effort for Iraq. This peacenik was now being put in charge of planning a war for OTI. Some people saw it. So I met Sloan here. Um, I didn't stand up. Some people did in our office and said, I do not want to work on this because I don't believe with where, where this is going. Uh, we could have said, this really isn't a transition. This is going to be a, an invasion. Um, so we just leave transition nebulous. And what I do not think we're going to uh, be involved with any major land wars in Asia in the near future. Uh, I hope. I think uh, we should all listen to Monty Python more often, and you should not get engaged in a land war in Asia. Um, so what comes in the post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan era? We could debate that. We can come up with it. I'm, I have some ideas. I'm sure you all have your ideas. I can guarantee you there are going to be new foreign policy challenges, and, there, and people at State Department and the National Security Council are going to want uh, OTI to be part of those challenges. And it's not going to define, not going to fit the definition of transition that we've used before. So we have to constantly expand that and, and play within it. Good. All Questions? Right. Fire away. Yes. Yeah, I was wondering, what just say who you are and then. Um, uh, who are you? Sorry, I'm Taylor Roberts. I'm, uh, I'm an intern here at CSIS. Uh -huh. uh, I was wondering when you, when you talk about the transition initiative, is it guiding the existing political climate in, in a kind of positive direction, or is it kind of creating the, the political environment itself and then leading it into, a, into the right direction? It's a great question. Um, sometimes we have off, I look at it, sometimes we have offensive programs where we're pushing a transition that's already going in the right direction, we're helping it. Sometimes we have defensive programs where the political space or uh, democratic sort of room for maneuver is getting smaller and we go in and try to help civil society and, and other f uh, forces keep that open. Um, but what I often say is we're a small drip into any bucket 
in any of these places, no matter how large our budget might be, and sometimes we have very large budgets. We can have $100 million a year in some countries. Usually it's much smaller than that. But there's so much going on in any of these environments that we have to be very realistic that we can just help nudge things along. We're not going to make a make or break difference. We've had some very dramatic things we've done in the past. We did a lot with uh, in Serbia uh, to help oust Milosevic, frankly. And every now and again, folks say, why not Belarus? You guys did this thing in Serbia. And I point out the United States government bombed Serbia as well. It wasn't just little OTI uh, helping Otpor with spray paint. And we did a lot of things that I'm very, very proud of in Serbia. But we were part of a much larger effort. I like to say we can ride waves. We can't make the wave. There has to be something going on there. And we have an engagement criteria to help us decide where we're going to go and where we're not. Um, they're guidelines. They're not rules. Or else we wouldn't have gone to Darfur. We can be very flexible with our engagement criteria. Um, one of them is, is there something different in the environment? Has something changed? If it's a status, static state, status quo thing, we can't go in and be expected to make the difference. Something has got to have happened to make a window of opportunity for us to go in there and just try to either find local change agents and help them implement their dream, which is fun, or find local valiant um, patriots who are trying to protect democracy in that environment and give them what they need. But we can't do it alone. We just help folks that are, that are there. And the best ideas are always going to come from people that live in that country and know it all. We, we, we just have to step aside, find brilliant people, and fund their dreams. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what kind of metric you use to wait, wait, hold on a sec. Do you guys pay your interns? No? <laughs> Good. Don't look at me, Bob. Maybe some, maybe. Maybe some, maybe. All right, some. summer pit. For those of you that are taking the unpaid internship, good career move. Very, very good career move. So go ahead. Um, I was wondering how you measure success when you're looking at political transitions. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, something we've been dealing with and struggling with um, since I joined in 98 in a very, very serious way. Uh, we take it very seriously, and I still say, uh, my people don't like this. I still think it's our Achilles heel. Um, what we deal with in a, these political environments, it's, it's an art, it's not a science. And I envy my colleagues that work in global health, where they can talk about uh, percentage change of X, Y, and Z. I envy, uh, for many reasons, my colleagues in the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, OFTA, who can say, number of lives saved, right? We're playing around in politics where there's a thousand other things going on, and it's almost, if not impossible, almost impossible, usually, to show attribution. We funded this group to do X, and Y happened. There's usually a leap of faith that says, and I, I use a, the, sort of the rule, if a relatively or more than relatively smart individual was to see what we did, could they say, yes, we think this made a positive contribution to the objective that they're going for? What does that mean? Barack Obama is president of the United States. 
Why? There's a lot of answers to that question. Here's one answer. He won the election. Okay. Why? Well, there's a lot of answers to that one. He had the best campaign. Why? Okay. There's a lot of answers to that one. One of them was the Obama campaign four years ago used the internet in a way that was completely revolutionary and had never been done before. And people will be using that as a model for at least another two, three election cycles to both get money and get the word out and to find a base that didn't exist. Almost everyone with half a brain cell would look at that and say, that internet work that that campaign did was a good thing and helped. Tell me how many votes that got him. Tell me how many points that got him. That is unknowable. But we know it was a good effort. So what we try to do, when we do a media campaign, when we work with NGO activists, when we work with youth groups, all I'm trying to do is get to the point where you, get, you have enough evidence, and you get numbers when you can. We do a lot of perception polling and things like that. But if we say that we're trying to change the perception towards this government in a positive way, and we do several polls, and we find that after we did our activities, the perception has changed in a positive way, we can't take all the credit for that when the thousand other things are going on. All I want to do is get to the point where we can say, yes, that was a positive contribution that you made and enough that, the, that I can go back to Congress and the American taxpayer can be happy that we spent their money wisely. Hope that answered it. Sort of a dodge. Hi, Hi. I'm Anna Saito. I work here at CSIS. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask a question in your earlier comments mm -hmm. when you had talked about USAID as um, basically being a banker. I knew that, that was going to come back to haunt me. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. People um, hate it when I say that. Yeah. Um, and that you know that you rely a lot on your implementing partners, mm -hmm. and you alluded to Thank sort of you. the shift in mindset that's happening right now, especially with sort of the USAID Ford reforms, mm -hmm. and that Dr. Shaw is focused on sort of using uh, like building local capacity, the 30%. Can yep. you sort of, and I've talked to Bill about this before, about sort of the reason why in the 90s, due to budgetary, operational budget reasons, USAID had to uh, sort of give out or, you know, ask for implementing partners to do the work, right? To yep. do the stuff, uh, technical expertise sort of as a result that went outside. Mm -hmm. And then now there's a shift in mindset. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution a little bit more and why now? Why not sure. before, and where do you think it's going, and how is it going to work? Because I think there are a lot of concerns that I'm hearing on a project that I'm working on, mm -hmm. both from the implementing side from the CADC community and the NGO community, but just sort of in where you sit, how do you see that going, and since you've been through many different administrations and changes. Yeah. And these aren't the official talking points. Um, this is Rob Jenkins' views. We sort of gathered that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why it's hard. Uh, no. As you alluded to, when you're, the size of your staff is going down every year, um, it's harder and harder to actually do things. Compounded by the fact of since the embassy bombings in Africa and then subsequently 9-11 and everything else, uh, both state and aid personnel find themselves more and more increasingly locked on compounds and making it harder to travel. Um, not just outside of capitals, but actually around capitals in a lot of places, we became more and more reliant on implementing partners to do the work. I think what uh, Dr. Shah and others are doing is a, 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 a tremendous 
effort in the right direction to say, let's get back to doing the work ourselves. What's wrong with that? And we have uh, almost doubled the size of the Foreign Service in the last few years. That was started by actually um, Administrator Tobias first came up with it. It was Administrator Henrietta Four who started uh, in a real way the DLI, the uh, Development Leadership Initiative. The idea was we were going to double the, the Foreign Service, and a lot of us back then went, no way are we going to get the money to do that. How are we going to do that? And I think it was, I think five years was the time frame. Um, a lot of us saw Jim Kunder with a chart that he would take up to, to Congress about every four hours and said, here's what we're trying to get, here's where the staffing numbers have gone down and the budget numbers for aid have gone up and how can we, how can we, how can we responsibly, creatively and effectively run foreign assistance programs when we get more money every year but less people to do it with. And just this year, because Congress said, okay, that's enough, the DLI initiative basically just stopped. Um, it doubled the size of the Foreign Service. We were, we were under a thousand people or just about a thousand people when it started and they've brought in, I think it's 800 plus people, <coughs> which is a massive effort. And now we're going to be hiring just a detrition now. Um, so we've, that's a big part of it. Dr. Shah has said, here's the next step. The next step is why not work with governments directly wherever and whenever we can. If we're talking about building their capacity, isn't that actually what building capacity is about? Um, but anyone that's tried it in the field knows it's very, 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 very hard. It's very hard to make that switch. Almost anyone who's worked anywhere in the development field knows that the government always goes, why are you giving that to the NGO? Why don't you give it straight to us? Well, most places, if that government worked as well as we wanted them to, they wouldn't need a development program there. So by the very nature that we're there to help them, that means they're not necessarily up to snuff. So how do we help them with that? And we, we now have teams that go out with people from our financial management and people from our program office and people from our contracting. They go out together, they work with local governments, they find ministries that basically get accredited and say that this one is capable of taking money directly. And the numbers, and I don't want to be misquoted, I don't know what the numbers are, it's going up. And uh, there's, I would say, assertive targets uh, that might be aspirational that we've made in, for the next few years, to, to, but um, a stretch goal, I would say but a lot of energy is going into it. Um, on the other hand, I spend a lot of time with people that are contractors. I spend a lot of time with people that are NGOs. I know that a lot of people are freaked out, that's a technical term, um, about this. That's not going away anytime soon. I don't think anyone has to get, people talk about market share and how much that goes to the NGOs and how much goes to contractors and, and they, they're fighting amongst each other half the time and, 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 and they're all worried it's all gonna go directly to the government of you pick the country. I think there's enough work for everybody and there's enough work to go around that no one needs to, to really uh, be worried. And I think the people that know how to help governments best are exactly our implementing partners. So let's not fight it, let's work together on those solutions. And we're gonna need implementing partners, both private and nonprofit, uh, 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 profit and nonprofit, to help us do that. 
and, I, I, and, and, and sort of stop the acrimony and start the working together on it. Because I think it's a very laudable goal, and we're all going to have to focus on it. And there's enough work for everybody. Um, yeah, my name's uh, Nick Smith. I'm a doctoral student at AU and a development practitioner in mm. Eastern Congo and Uganda. Um, I had two questions. Um, one, I was wondering what you thought about the ability to export sort of this more agile aid model that you were talking about mm -hmm. that OTI is able to do to different other offices with, within USAID. And then also, um, I was wondering if you could comment on the, how the political dimension of uh, OTI affects its ability to operate in certain contexts, and you know, just taking some of the more obvious examples in Zimbabwe, Darfur, where uh, that political dimension is what precludes it from operating to the extent that it could if it were, you know, MSF or something. Great question. You should be a doctoral student. Oh, you are. Um, on the first thing, uh, Rick Barton, our first director, said when he created OTI, when he started that he thought OTI would be gone in five years. He thought that he would create a new model. And my longer talk on this is it was, Al Gore was reinventing government. It was 1994, 1995, 1996. It was the beginning of the dot-com era. People were going on Casual Friday and, and Silicon Valley was beginning and people were having scooters around the office. And that was very much the OTI crazy. Uh, you guys yeah. had to deal with it, right? Yeah, we had, yeah. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> We were, when you create a new office in government, because it takes two to three years to get money from the cycle, you have to steal money from somewhere, right? OTI was created by stealing money from OFTA, $10 million. And Not willingly. This goes, to your, this goes to your political question. Humanitarian assistance, IDA money, special, the most special money that exists. They said, yeah, we want OTI to have some of that. It has this thing called notwithstanding authority, which means notwithstanding any other provision of law, which means if there's a law in the way, you can waive it and say, we don't care if there's, if there's sanctions on Iran, but there's an earthquake in Iran and bomb, where Bill Wynn is part of that, you can get around those sanctions by saying, our money's special. So they wanted to take, and they did, $10 million out of OFTA, which is literally taking food out of the mouths of hungry children and give it to OTI so we could go fund radio campaigns in Bosnia. Woo! Right? It wasn't, it wasn't looked at kindly by OFTA. Yeah. Later, Mike Hess, <laughs> this gentleman here, helped create the Office of Military Affairs and stole $3 million of OTI's budget to start that office. And all OTI staff were all up in arms. I said, guys, this is how it works. Sorry. We, you got you to give. Um, anyway. Rick thought we'd be gone in five years. He thought that he would create a model that everyone else would say, obviously, this is a better way of doing things. We'll just change everything. 18 years later, um, we're still trying real hard to, and we, are, we now have a dedicated unit within OTI called the Transition Support Unit, where what we do is help missions and help other parts of USAID when they want help to try to help spread our lessons learned. Uh, try to help them look at things in new ways. We help them with program design. We help them with, with strategy. We help them with M&E ideas. It's really, if you ask me, and I'm a bit biased, um, and when Dr. Shaw came in, he really wanted us to um, expand and do what we could for the rest of the agency. And I said, it's, it's, it's all about culture. It's actually all about mindset. 
And most of the people in aid say, no, it's, you guys have special authorities. You have this notwithstanding authority. You don't have to obey the same rules. We almost never use notwithstanding authority. We've never met a waiver we don't like. We waive a lot of things. But the waivers, and it's a technical thing, the waivers we use are available to every other person in USAID. And the hill, when you go up and people go up to the hill and they complain that there's a certain thing that's in the way, almost always the hill will say, we've given you guys a waiver. There's in the law. You can waive things all the time if, things, if it makes sense. We use waivers. We have a can-do attitude. Um, we do things faster than a lot of other people in aid. Um, just because we think it can be done faster. And we, put up, we don't put up with a timeline when they say it's going to take a few weeks. We say, why does it have to take a few weeks? How many steps are involved? Four. How long is each step? Mm, each one's like one person, one hour. That looks like four hours to me. That's not four weeks. Well, you know, it's sort of, no, it looks like four hours to me. Let's push that. How about eight? We'll settle for eight hours instead of four weeks. A lot of what we, can, we do can be done by others in the agency. Having said that, not everyone should do things fast. One of our rules is it's better to be 80% right at the right time than 100% right too late, right? 80% solutions are good enough for me in these environments. Not if you're building a bridge. If you're building a bridge, 80%, not enough. So some of our lessons learned aren't applicable to everyone. Um, and that's okay. OFTA, do no harm. They have to. If we, did no, if we only did things when we were guaranteed it would do no harm, we wouldn't do a lot because we're playing in political environments and we know there are power dynamics and there's always a downside. And we have to be extremely, extremely cautious that we're and, and, and uh, awake to what could happen as spinoffs and second and tertiary effects of what we do. So do no harm works for OFTA. It doesn't work for us in that same way. Um, the political dimension, I've already sort of touched on it. When we were created, and tell me if I'm wrong, I wasn't around, Bill was at OFTA. A lot of people in OFTA and other parts of the agency were afraid. We, we OTI, used the term overtly political. There was a scream that went up from a lot in aid that said, you can't politicize aid. No one's going to want our humanitarian assistance. If they see you taking sides, and we say, we do take sides in these, in these things. Um, we'll be on the side of a good government against spoilers. We'll be on the side of democracy activists against a repressive government. We take sides. If you take sides, no one's going to take the rest of aid assistance. Um, that hasn't borne out, but in a place like Zimbabwe, they're very quick to say, oh, that's actually the CIA. Uh, actually the CIA. And look what they did in Serbia. And we get that. If you Google right now OTI, you'll have a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff about Venezuela. Um, there's a, 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 an industry of, of some individuals have created about complaining how what we tried to do in, for, for several years in, in, in Venezuela was Al Chavez, which was not what we wanted to do or tried to do. Um, uh, we, we did a lot of good work to protect uh, democratic space in Venezuela. But that baggage comes with us uh, different places. And in some places, we're, we use the word transition, and in some places, we don't use the word transition uh, because it's not that acceptable to, to the local environment. We're also, on our website, there are, uh, everything we do 
is above board. Everything we do, we do nothing classified at all. But there are some things for the protection of our partners we don't scream about and we don't publicize like we do in other places. And that's because we work with some very, very courageous people in very, very dangerous places. And we don't want to necessarily put them at jeopardy. We do quite a bit. Um, right now, in our Cote d'Ivoire program, is focused on one of the things is getting the court system up and running. There's 25 different courts around the country that we are are rehabilitating and providing um, uh, rudimentary uh, sort of packages just so they can get back up and functioning. We've done a lot of that stuff in a lot of different places. In northern Uganda, our program was basically to help facilitate the government of Uganda get back into newly peaceful areas after the LRA had left so that the folks that were all displaced could, get, could move back. That included schools, it included hospitals and clinics, but it also included police stations and, and justice centers. As you know, the justice sector is one of the most difficult things to actually make uh, inroads in development because you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot easier to train some kinds of workers than train lawyers and judges. Uh, it takes a long time. It takes, it takes commitment. But like, so sometimes what we do is the quick and easy stuff. We're the brash cowboys. We go in. We are supposed to only have two to three years, so we'll do a lot of the hard stuff work very closely with some of our other aid colleagues in Democracy Rights and Governance Center, INL, and others from state. They'll provide the longer term, I would say, more thoughtful, reasoned, and specialized skill sets that have to go into um, the, the, the brain part of it. We, we can be the brawn part often. But having said that, in a lot of different places, we'll do one, two, three uh, grants with, 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 with various groups. Um, right now in Libya, we're doing stuff in the justice, sec uh, justice sector uh, and Tunisia. Um, but it's, it's and it, it, you point out a good thing. What we like to say is we don't deal in sectors. And if you've seen one OTI program, <coughs> you've seen one OTI program. Because uh, we do very different things in different places. We try to key in. And like everyone else, we get into f patterns. We have to challenge ourselves. We get, I would say, intellectually lazy. We look back and go, actually, we're, 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 we're keyed into not enough things. I want to do more on jump-starting economies, but that's really hard. I mean, no one can agree on what works, even in this country, right? So how do you jump-start an economy in some of these places? But I think that's a blind side we've always had we should move into when we haven't done it yet. Um, Sometimes, if transitional justice is a make-or-break issue, we'll focus on it. Sometimes, if it's atrocity prevention, we'll focus on it. Sometimes, if it's media, we'll focus on it. It depends on what, what the need is. If I, I want to change the, the, the question just a little bit, or sort of what we're talking about. When, <laughs> He's bored. When, no, no, no. Uh -huh. Just the other, the other part of this. Mm -hmm. when, when you're hiring an OTI, what, what yeah. kind of backgrounds are you looking for? What kind of that's skills? It's a, a great point. Since I don't have a master's degree um, still, uh, much to my mom's chagrin, but I point out I, I guest speak at a lot of master's programs all the time. 
Uh, I've made, thank you, an honorary degree. Uh, I make sure that you don't need to have a master's degree, first of all, to work for OTI. Um, there's always a or equivalent experience that we put in there. Field experience is important. It's not necessary, but it's important for us. If um, uh, You can get an entry-level job in OTI without it, and you can progress within OTI without it. Um, but field experience helps. Um, it, and that can be Peace Corps. But it also depends on what country the field experience is in, right? So if I'm looking for an OTI program manager to run a program on Tunisia, that year in France, mm, okay, you got French. How about if I'm running a program in Sri Lanka? You're in France, doesn't, that just looks like a year in France. That's not necessarily a year in the Congo. That's not necessarily a year in South Sudan. That's important, first of all. Second, a lot of our people come from our implementing partners or similar implementing partners. So if people want to get into government, and I'll tell you, I said the implementing partners have the most fun. I could walk out of OTI right now and make a lot more money working for one of our implementing partners. I've chosen not to do that because it's really fun to go over to the White House and help make policy as well. So there's different parts of being fun. If you want a job in government, and I truly believe there is no higher calling, and the first, second, third, hell, every time you go to the White House Situation Room, it's cool. <laughs> I don't care what people tell you. It's still cool, right? Um, it's those m and I was going to say it's the M&Ms. <laughs> and you're, all, you're looking around. There's no coasters. Back in the day, there was ashtrays. You could, there's nothing to take, right? <laughs> to prove you were there. But there's M&Ms, but they melt. I've tried it. Um, <laughs> hey, honey, look, I was in the Situation Room. Uh, to get into government, to get into OTI, if you've worked for one of our or a similar implementing partner, most people have done that before they, they come in. But we get a lot of people that are straight out of grad school. Um, if it's a relevant graduate degree and you have the right uh, mix of, of internships, here is, and this is the nitty gritty, way, uh, Rob's uh, secrets to getting an interview, okay? And if some of you this is too detailed, then just blank out for a minute. The way at least USAID hires is if you're applying to a job, every single question, every single word that they're asking you about, you need to include every one of those words in your answer because there's either a computer or a person looking for every word. What does that mean? If we say you must have experience leading, managing, mentoring, and teaching people, you need to say, I led people doing this, I managed people doing this, I mentored people doing this, and I taught people doing this, and fill that out. Because if you don't, someone goes, ah, you don't get those two points because they didn't mention mentoring. Right? I learned this when we had a three-time US ambassador apply for a job in OTI to a thing called our bullpen. And he didn't qualify for an interview. And I thought that was a problem. And I was going to get yelled at, probably by this three-time former ambassador or someone else. How did he not even get an interview? And our recruiters said, look, look at his application. Well, yeah, but you, one of the things was negotiation skills, and you gave him a zero. 
he did not mention that he has negotiation skills. They are not allowed to infer anything because they can be, they, then they, they can only go off what's on the written page. So I used to hate people that did the applications that were like 45 pages long. I mean, you know, a CV, if you can't put your CV on two pages or three pages, really. In this environment, if you're applying to a job, at least with OTI or other parts of aid, answer the question and over answer it and put everything and the kitchen sink in there because all you're trying to get to is there's someone that's rating that and giving you scores on so many points for each thing you mention and all you're trying to do is get to the interview and once you get to the interview all that goes out the window and then you're in a whole different world so it's a little technical thing but we've had people that have worked for OTI for many years apply for another job in OTI and not get an interview and I have to go back and say you numbskull all you said was, well, I worked with OTI for 10 years. You didn't answer every single little tiny line that was in there. I don't know if that answers your question. If you want a job. Yes. Oh, sorry. You're supposed this, to pick yeah, people. The final question. Ooh. We're, we're oh, wow. um, Alexa Courtney, Karis Associates, and formerly AID. Um, Rob, I would wager that anyone here um, who has worked with you or for you would follow you into the next challenge. Mm. You've inspired a lot of people in your career that's wonder, very nice. It's true. I wonder if you would share with us which, who inspires you as a leader and hmm. why? Good, good question. Um, these two gentlemen inspire me. <laughs> and uh, I'm proud to call them friend and mentor. Rick Barton was a very important part of my development. Uh, it's fun now uh, that many people in this town see us as adversaries. And the first question I get almost every time I speak is, so what's the difference between CSO and OTI? Um, to have my former uh, boss and mentor now uh, someone that I have to negotiate with over what we're going to do together, not as fun. I, I got to say, uh, going back to Bishop Tutu, who's also a crier, by the way. Uh, <laughs> He's one of the, and he's one, of, he's one of the few mentors I have that's shorter than me, actually. Uh, I'm a passionate guy. I tend to put a lot behind other passionate people. And I really think, this is where I'm going to cry. There's this new, HP has a new thing the last week or two, which is what, uh, do it if it doesn't, if it's not, there's no reason to do it if it doesn't, if it's not worth it or it doesn't make sense. It if it doesn't make a difference, right? I love that, right? Life is way too short to have a job that's not fun, right? So have a sense of humor at work, which, which Bishop Tutu does. Um, but also, things are too important to take lightly. So you gotta sometimes throw down and get really, really serious. He also does that. Um, you're going to spend more waking hours with the people you work with than the people you love, probably. So find people you like to work with. There's, no, there's too many options for things to do to spend lots and lots of time with people you don't enjoy being with. And that team, whatever you're trying to do, is not going to be a fantastic, successful, high-performance team if you're all busy not liking each other. So seek out a team that you do like, or build a team that you like. Um, I'm often accused of having favorites. Um, 
Well, yeah, of course they got the job. You know, Rob worked with them before. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if you're supposed to build a high-performing team, why pick people that haven't proven themselves that you don't like, you've never met before? And yeah, if I, if I, I'm going to pick the best person I know. Why not? I don't think that's wrong as long as they qualify. Um, so I've looked around and seen people that, 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 that do that. I think people, my guess here is a big person to, to talk about the difference of leaders and, and managers. Um, you need both. You really need both. And it's easy to be inspired by a leader. But after a year or two or three of inspiration, then you start to see that that leader is making some stupid mistakes when they end up trying to manage. On the other hand, it's great to work for a great manager until you've had a few really bad days. And you, then that's when you want the leader. If you can find the individuals that have both or who understand their own weaknesses and build a team that compensates for their weakness, the great leader who actually doesn't manage and says, my number two is going to do the management for that, or the manager who picks the great deputy who's the one that can lead and give the pep talk, that's what you look for. And I'd end with, because it's the last question, to repeat myself, life is too short to have